Blog Talk Radio. Glamour, fearless, Diva Talk Radio. It's been your twenty feeling that you're walking on the ceiling and you party like you're eight feet tall. You say working for the birds, chasing dreams in mini skirts. From here, everything seems small. Then thirties come around, and you finally feel the ground. Look around, and maybe start planning for what the future holds. And know you're far from old. You moisturize and spend less time tanning. You're hanging over, but you're hanging. And how much money you owe Got bags under your eyes Bigger hips and bigger thighs You got places that you can't even itch You can nip it, tuck it, squeeze it But you're never gonna beat it Cause gravity a bitch Hi, y'all are you ready? Because I'm ready to welcome you to Diabetes Late Night. I'm your host, Mr. Divabetic, and thank you for listening. I'd like to empower you tonight to manage your diabetes with confidence, knowledge, and inspiration. Our guests include the Charlie's Angels of Outreach, poet Lorraine Brooks, Mama Rosemarie, best-selling author Kim Boykin, and Marina Slaplinia. Oh, my gosh, I'm going to get it wrong. I'll have to talk to her about this. Slaplinia. The founder of an amazing organization, I won't get this wrong, thebeaties.org. Check that site out. It's incredible. Tonight, we're going to be talking about the topic of self-worth and diabetes with inspiration from country superstar Miranda Lambert. I think you just heard some of her humor early on with that first song. Uh, I'll be showcasing songs from her newest album, Platinum, courtesy of Sony Music, all night long. And Miranda titled this album Platinum because it represents a fun yet glamorous vibe about life, she said. And she says that platinum lifestyle isn't just about money, diamonds, or jewelry. It also represents a hair color, a brand of beer, and the color of her favorite vehicle, an Airstream. So it's affordable to everyone. So why not go platinum and glamorize your health when you're dealing with blood sugar highs and lows? You don't need a lot of money to do that either. It's all about attitude. You can boost your self-esteem by saying positive and affirming messages out loud in the mirror, like, I am the best and I deserve the best, because it's important to recognize and reward yourself for taking the time, energy, and money to manage your diabetes. According to the American Diabetes Association, diabetes can gnaw away at your sense of self-worth. Many people tend to blame themselves for having diabetes and think less of, the, less of themselves because they feel different. Well, you know, the breaking news that Oscar-winning actor and comedian Robin Williams took his own life yesterday was so shocking and perplexing to me, I think it only clarifies why it's so important to talk about self-worth tonight. No, Robin Williams didn't have diabetes, and please don't get that wrong, um, but his death, in my opinion, reveals just how hard it is to cope with depression. Here's the thing. It doesn't matter how famous, successful, or funny you seem to be. Depression really is an illness. It doesn't care how you look, how much money you have, or how many followers you might have on Twitter or friends on Facebook. Severe depression affects someone's thinking, making it hard for them to think rationally. They can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. And I'm going to be discussing that more tonight, later on with my special guest, Dr. Beverly S. Adler, about coping and depression, and hopefully give you some of the tools you may need or one of your loved ones may need who's dealing with these issues. In the meantime, if someone you know is suffering from suicidal tendencies, I want to take a minute and tell you now is the time to seek help. You could call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. You'll be connected to a skilled, trained counselor at a crisis center in your area. I'm going to post this information later on on our Divabetic blog. 
And if you don't think depression, I mean, suicide is anything near you, I want to tell you honestly, earlier this year, I lost a good friend to suicide. He was talented, charming, um, and so funny. I mean, not as famous as Robin Williams, and it affected my life. And so dealing with these issues, finding qualified therapists like Dr. Beverly Adler, reaching out for resources is a way to make a change. I don't know if it could help everyone, but tonight we're going to talk about it. We're going to bring it to life, and hopefully through conversation, you'll spark interest for you to seek out the, the comfort, connection, and friends you need to cope with this illness. Stay tuned because tonight we're going to get some platinum spoken word inspiration on this edition of Diabetes Late Night. Well, I'm getting so relaxed with Miranda Lambert, everybody. It's hard to believe I'm going to get the chance to welcome my very first guest. She's been on the show with me for over a year now. Please welcome poet, TV host, jewelry designer, I don't know, woman extraordinaire, Lorraine Brooks. Hi, Lorraine. Hi, Max. How are you? I'm great. I'm excited to be kicking off another year of Divey's Late Night with you. As am I. Congratulations to both of us. Yeah, you know, and it, it uh, it's interesting. I don't know if you heard about, uh, did you hear anything about Robin Williams? I mean, it has been all over the newspapers. Yeah, and very sad news and, and shocking. You know, I, I don't think anybody realized what what was behind that facade, you know? Well, I think that's why it's just, it's resonating so strongly with people because everyone thinks of him as just being that brilliant comedian. I mean, he overcame so many obstacles. He started out as a comedian, made it to TV, then made the leap to uh, the big screen, went from comedy to drama. I mean, really, you know, at the end of the day, people just recognize what a huge talent he was. And I think he sh- shattered so many things that a lot of other actors might get and actresses might get caught up in, you know, because people can't see them in different roles. And this man, in my opinion, really, his, if you look at his body of work, it was just so rich, you know, it's incredible. Well, I think that he, um, you know, he's, he's the embodiment of the person that we look at and see as having everything. And, um, don't understand, you know, really what he was suffering with in his in his own personal world, and I think that's what we tend to do. We tend to look at people and only see one dimension of them, or only see what they what they're showing us on the outside. It's hard to believe that somebody who was so talented and seemed to be on top of the world would really be so hurting and so um, unhappy on the inside. It's hard to wrap your head around that. It is, and I still think there's such a stigma around mental health issues that, you know, we get stuck there and we don't go deeper. I know when my friend Scott died, all of our, all of us kept calling each other, trying to figure out why, 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 and piece it together. And, you know, I, I just think we don't, no one really looks at depression as an illness. We try to think mm-hmm. that, you know, it, people are taking their lives with suicide is how they claim, how they say it, but really you die from suicide is, I, mm. I think, maybe a better way to reference it. And I, I think there's still a stigma around, you know, reaching out for therapy with, like, going to someone like Dr. Lee, uh, Dr. Beverly S. Adler or, you know, joining a group therapy session or even investigating in how you might be able to cope with some of these feelings because it, it seems to me that people do feel they're different and they they lose hope and and they they don't reach out and you know it's it's hard for people i think they don't um they don't think it's that common maybe well i i think also people don't really see it as a disease in the same way they do diabetes or cancer or something else i think sometimes um when it's a disease of your mind or your emotions our tendency might be to try and handle it ourselves whereas if we have a a different kind of disease that can be handled medically. We don't have any problem to go to a physician to do that. But we we tend to think that we can handle our own emotional stuff ourselves. And, um, you know, I've I've been in therapy for many years, and I don't have a problem saying that. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. 
I've been in therapy well, did, for many years, but, and know, it's, did you feel your, it's really helpful. You, I mean, you, you have to have somebody you trust to talk to, and it really helps to talk about what you're going through. And did a lot of that stem from your diabetes, or were you seeking treatment before you had diabetes? Um, well, no, I wasn't. I've had diabetes for so long I can't even remember, but um, it wasn't a result of diabetes, but certainly diabetes complicates things, you know, as we know. It not only complicates your physical being and the things that you go through on a physical level, but the stress of it can can impact your mental health and your emotional health too. So I mean, you know, my 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 therapy doesn't necessarily revolve around diabetes, but having diabetes, you know, makes some things a little bit more difficult or a little bit more, you know, impactful than others. But I would encourage anybody to, who's feeling in any way um, like they need help or they need somebody to talk to, to find a good therapist that, that you can trust and somebody who uh, you can really share your, your emotions with. It's really, really, really important. Um, and uh, y- you just have to treat it like you would if you had a toothache. You would go to a dentist. I don't see anything wrong with going to a therapist, and I would encourage everybody to do that. I agree, and I I always love your outspoken attitude. Thank you for doing that. And now we're ready to get inspired by you, Lorraine, because platinum (laughs) is the word of the night. Well, it's funny, Max. You you mentioned something about a vehicle um, that that Miranda Lambert, um, something about her vehicle being platinum. It's funny because I just realized when you said that that actually the color of my car is liquid platinum. Oh, there you go. So, yeah, and I and I one of the reasons I liked it is because I like the name of the color and it really is kind of cool. So I wrote tonight's poem about platinum. We, you and I were talking about how platinum is not just a color and not just a uh, a metal, a precious metal, but it's so much more than that. So the title of my poem is Platinum. To live like platinum in all its brilliance and glory, a rock emerging from the earth covered in dirt in its origins, and yet the most precious substance there is. I am platinum. You are platinum. Our precious core being tested and stretched, but still shining like liquid diamonds or gold lace. I can be a platinum button on elegant blue jeans, or the saucer under the queen's goblet for tea. I can be platinum as I measure out the dose of my next injection, my careful calculations resulting in the perfection of control. My platinum voice shatters the silence of the morning shower and gasps as I admire myself in the evening glass while exiting the shiny taxi on Broadway. We are all platinum. I am platinum. You are platinum. We are the squeals of the children in the playground. We are the moments of clarity in the confusion of illness. We are the quarter placed in the blind man's cup. We are the farmer's crop of green and brown at harvest time. We are the click of the cowboy's boots on the prairie at sunset. We are the tears at the moments of loss and devastation. We are the deafening cheers of the runner's victory lap. We are pure beauty and gossamer wings and the most precious substance there is. Shine on, platinum heroes. The worth of a stone is not in the polish or the cut, but in the heart. Thank you, Max. Great job, Lorraine. Thank you, and thank Miranda Lambert for inspiring us to talk about platinum tonight. That's and thank Miranda Lambert. Poem. You know, she ha- she gets a lot of inspiration from different things, too, uh, Lorraine, similar to you when she's creating her art. In fact, her biggest country inspiration is Shenandoah, a group that created pure sound that takes a listener back home every time, she says. So let's take another listen to a Miranda Lambert song from her newest album, Platinum. All right. 
right, everybody, you're listening to Diabetes Late Night. I'm your host, Mr. Diva Bedek, and tonight we're talking about self-worth and diabetes. Do you think it's too late to try something new? Are you in a rut? Well, guess what? My next guest is celebrating the release hey, of her newest uh, novel. Can get a reservation for three about... Um, oh, she's on the line. Quarter seven. Kim Boykin, welcome to the show. Uh, hi, honey. I hope you were. I hope you were making reservations for all of us. All my listeners just heard that. I was. That. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Right, so. I thought Mama Rosa was up next. So my bad. <laughs> all right. Well, we should tell everyone. You're. Um, I was just announcing you that you just wrote. You just came out with your latest novel, Palmetto Moon, which I had the pleasure of reading. Uh, this is an exciting moment in your life. You've you started writing later on in life, and now here you are, three, four novels deep into it. You came out with The Wisdom of Hair. You have Steal Me Cowboy. Is it Sweet Home? Oh, yeah, I have several novellas. Steal Me Cowboy, Sweet Home Carolina, and Flirting with Forever, and the newest one is called She's the One and Palmetto Moon. Wow. So this has all happened in, what, the last ten, five years, eight years? In a, in a what? In a whirlwind. Basically, I started trying to get published when my son was in the third grade, and he's 24. And uh, he went to acting school, and when he got out, it's kind of funny because our little careers have paralleled, and and we're both sort of chugging along with the same, you know, the businesses are very similar. So it's really cool. And, I mean, it had. Did, how does your self-esteem tie into this? Because this is obviously something you were always a writer. Oh, I've read your bio. You loved to write as a child. You, you, were, um, you joined several writing clubs and associations. And so now it can't, it's finally come full circle, and you've realized your dream. Did, did this, how, how has it affects your mood and just your overall attitude? You know, it was really hard um, because... Every, most everybody who writes a book, they want they do it because they want to be heard and they want to be published. And, and I'll be honest with you, um, I got an agent. She was a, a wonderful lady, um, a big agent, and then she died a few months later, and it was devastating. Um, and then I was um, with her partner for a while, and she wasn't going to sell my stuff, so I decided to go out on my own and submit. And it's a, it's tough. It's it's very much like acting. You're putting yourself out there and your work out there, and you're getting getting a lot of doors slammed in your face. And that was back when we did um, hard copy submissions. You had to go to the post office and mail your set, um, stamp self-addressed envelope to the, pub, uh, to the agent, a literary agent. And... Um, I'll be honest with you, when I went to the mailbox a lot of days and there was rejection in the mailbox, I mean, I just kind of came inside and took a nap, you know, tried to sleep it off. It was, it was, it was hard. It was really hard. Um, but I think, you know, there is something in everyone that most of the time, and, and I thought about this a lot, especially with Robin Williams, most of the time, we're like the Energizer Bunny. We just go, you know. And then there's sometimes when we have that moment when we when we stop and we can't go forward. And I think that's why it's important to talk about these these times. And I had good friends and uh, writers who were going through the same thing. And it was just um, it was just so helpful to know that you know I wasn't the only one experiencing those things. No, and I appreciate for your honesty. I mean, I think a lot of times people see those books, they don't realize the challenges that went on for that person to get it to us being able to either buy it on Amazon as an e-book or go to Barnes & Noble or buy it online as a hardcover. So I, I just uh, I appreciate your honesty with that and, and helping us kind of just show people that perseverance, dedication all pays off because here you are celebrating the release of this wonderful novel. I like Palmetto Moon so much because I really think it ties into the theme tonight because your main character, uh, Vada, uh, she's a debutante. It's 1947, but she's also a feminist. And this is very interesting to me. Here she is in the South, and she's a debutante who's, you know, basically in for an arranged marriage, but there's another side of her and she really does take a twist of fate. She really does challenge what's in front of her. Um, tell us a little bit about it. 
Well, the the interesting thing, and 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 I'll just be southern and and uh, and say say give you the southern pronunciation of the name of Beta. Oh. But um, yeah, no, that's okay. But the um, uh, Beta. Uh, when I initially started writing the book, I thought that she was a, a fluffy blonde, uh, you know, just sort of a bubble-headed young girl, and. Um, and the interesting thing about her was the way that she grew and the way that she sort of noticed things around her and she figured out what she wanted. And the really cool thing about Veda, and I think where the feminist element came, comes in, is that she actually verbalizes those things in a time when women did not do that. And, and even, you know, even today, that a lot of women have a hard time verbalizing what they want or what they need. Uh, particularly in a relationship, and um, yeah, I was just I, I was just shocked when uh, uh, there's a particular scene where uh, it's very apparent that that she's a feminist in 1947, and I was as shocked as probably she was. <laughs> well, I think you know there's a there's another character in the book who's a single. Uh, mother of boys, and she's a, she's been widowed, and you know Claire. you Claire, you feel very ba- she's very much backed up against the wall, and I think it, it's almost hard for people to relate to it today that she had absolutely no options in front of her, that she you know there were no daycare centers at that time, uh, it just uh-huh. it was just a different world, and and you really you know when you talk about clear and you show the journey she goes through in the book it's kind of amazing to me because it just puts so much into perspective as we go forward with more women um shattering the glass ceilings and taking on different Mm -hmm. professions and and moving forward in their lives and you read about this woman who's trying to do uh good for herself and her children and it's just you know it 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 really is eye-opening i hope people pick up the book Oh, thank you, Max. I appreciate that. I really enjoyed it. It was such a joy to write. Was it a joy? Oh, yeah, it was. It was. And uh, and particularly Claire, I think, because, you know, I write a lot about women's relationships, and, and uh, I kinda, I, my thing is sort of writing about women, helping women find their happily ever after, because that's one of the great things about women is that they are nurturing, and they do... Um, they do tend to lend a hand to help uh, each other out, and uh, and uh, yes, and 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 the, the book was a lot of fun to write. Just uh, it's funny, and um, you know, I sit here and laugh when I'm writing. When you, when I hear my characters tell me their story, and I write it down, I laugh just as much as the people who are reading it. Well, I, I had such a pleasure. Tell everyone how they could get their copy of Palmetto Moon. Palmetto Moon is available at uh, major booksellers, Barnes & Noble, uh, Amazon, Books Million. Uh, it's also available uh, on uh, Kindle Nook, uh, Kobo, and iTunes as well if you read on a tablet. So, uh, Great. Great. Yeah, thank you. Well, and I know you're a big Miranda Lambert fan, so what's your favorite song oh. by Miranda Lambert? Oh my gosh, I love that new song. Um I was uh got a good feeling something bad's about to happen. Oh yeah, we're gonna uh, Oh, well stick around oh, Kim because we're gonna be playing it that. later on the show. But right now we're gonna play another cut from the same album. It's called Platinum and uh here's Miranda Lambert. Thanks, Kim. Welcome back. You're listening to Divey's Late Night, inspired by Miranda Lambert. I'm your host, Mr. Diva Bedick, and I'm going to meet the Charlie's Angels of Outreach. Please welcome Neva White from Thomas Jefferson University Hospital. Hi, Neva. Hi, Matt. 
Beverly, uh, Dr. Beverly Adler from New York. Hello, Dr. Bev. Hi, hi, Max, and we're not that formal. I go as Dr. Bev. I love that. And Patricia Addy-Gentle from Atlanta, Georgia. Hi, Patricia. Hi, Max. Welcome to the show, ladies. Uh, You know, I mentioned at the top of the show where I'm changing things up. Dr. Bev, you and I spoke a little bit about this earlier through email. I wanted to talk, I wanted to kick off our hot topics tonight, talking about depression, coping with depression, and what we just read in the headlines about Robin Williams. Yes, I I certainly, uh, it's certainly a hot topic. And uh, and we're all, you know, terribly shocked and saddened by uh, Robin Williams' death. It's... uh, it's really a tragedy, and uh, I personally, I feel so sorry for him. I mean, I feel sorry for his family and his fans, but I feel sorry for him that he felt that there was no other choice left for him and that he was so depressed, which we knew nothing about, because he really was a wonderful actor, and uh, he did not let on you know, about uh, how much, uh, you know, pain he was in with his uh, depression. And um, I, uh, I, I, in my reading about uh, suicide, I came across this word that, that they, they um, this is some psychologists, refer to suicide as a psych aid, ache, psych ache. Okay. And, uh, it's uh, suicide is defined as the misguided solution to unbearable psychic pain, and uh, uh, you know I um, I would have hoped that he would have been able to speak to somebody about uh, this unbearable pain that he was experiencing, but um, I think that what happens with uh, depression is that it casts such a, a dark cloud over your thinking, you cannot think clearly. And all you want to do is get out of this pain. And he, he suffered, as far as I know, this lifelong depression. And um, I, I've heard bipolar mentioned as well. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know what his diagnosis was. But I'm going to say that his use of um, cocaine and alcohol at a certain point in his life, I'm going to say those were his way of self-medicating, trying to cope as best as he could with his depression. This is not unusual. And, uh, it, you know, it. Uh, eventually he, he realized that uh, this was not the solution. It's unfortunate the solution that he did choose. No, it is. And I want to ask you, like, what about the people around him? You know, because a lot of us are always questioning, like, why, 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 and wondering, like, what could I have done? Should I have called? Should I have reached out? So what kind of advice can you give the people who are, you know, so many people are affected by uh, suicide. And also, you know, we could talk a little bit about depression, too. But just around this idea about people seem to blame themselves for why something like that happened and keep questioning or have regret around, you know, what could have happened, how they could have stopped that. I think that's a false notion. I don't think that anybody can stop anybody from committing suicide if they're dead set that that is their goal and that is their um, that is their plan. You know, I mean, I'm short of, you know, restraining someone and, you uh, keeping them from harming themselves, uh, I would imagine that he kept his plan very quiet and uh, thought it through. And I'm going to say that it is nobody's fault uh, for not uh, picking up on any clues. But there is a, there's a long list of um, suicide warning signs, but that doesn't mean that... Um, that you know you you may be able to recognize them if if there's a loved one in your life but um if i may i just want to read some of these um suicide warning signs Mm -hmm. talking about wanting to kill to die or to kill themselves that 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 should always be treated seriously um looking for a way to kill themselves such as searching online or buying a gun talking about feeling hopeless or having no reason to live. Well, you know, if somebody talks about their feelings, yes, you can help them, 
but I don't know that Robin Williams, for one, was talking. Talking about feeling trapped or in unbearable pain. As soon as someone talks about it, you, the door is open for help. I don't know that that was the case. Talking about being a burden to others. Increasing the use of alcohol or drugs. Acting anxious or agitated. Behaving recklessly. I don't know if there were any warning signs for Robin Williams. Sleeping too little or too much. Withdrawing or isolating themselves. Showing rage or talking about seeking revenge. And the last one on the list is displaying extreme mood swings. I, 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 as, as you already provided, the, the number for um, the suicide hotline, if anybody recognizes any of these symptoms that I have just described, the number is 1-800-273-TALK, T-A-L-K, which is 8255, 1-800-273-TALK. And, uh, you know, I would hope that somebody would seek help to talk, but if somebody is, is you know, just uh, feels that the talking is done, there's not, there really... You know what? He's he. Robin Williams was certainly an intelligent man, and uh, the thing about suicide is that generally, when men attempt suicide, they use much more uh, violent methods, and they have much more chance of success. When women um, choose suicide, they are gentler uh, methods, and they generally don't have as much success. But fewer men attempt suicide, but they're more successful. And there are more women who attempt suicide, and they're less successful. Interesting. Well, thanks for giving us that insight into that. I appreciate it. We're going to move on and talk to Neva White now. Uh, Neva, I know a lot of people with diabetes have their self-worth challenged in the doctor's office. They feel stupid asking questions, or they feel too embarrassed to ask a question. Uh, what What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think, first of all, one of the things we try to do is we uh, talk to people about the kinds of questions that you want to talk to your health care provider about. Um, it's nice if you can bring somebody with you, if you have a family member or a friend who you can decide ahead of time uh, how they're going to participate in your visit. You, One of the things that's nice is ask for a copy of your medical summary and a lot of doctors' offices now have uh, medical records, electronic medical records, and they provide you with that summary. But ask for it uh, prior to the end of your visit, because sometimes you get it on your way out. But if you could ask your physician to give it to you just before the visit is over, and you can kind of go over it to see if there was anything that you forgot or anything you didn't think of, try to write down questions also because Sometimes, you know, the week before your visit, you'll have a question and you may forget about it. So if you can write these things down and have this information uh, readily available to you. The other thing that you can do is look at some of your health maintenance things as it relates to managing your diabetes. You know, when was the last time I got my eyes checked? When was the last time I had you know, a particular test, when was the last time I went to the foot doctor, so so that you can kind of go through that checklist of what you need to have and what you've already accomplished. I like that. It's like really becoming an advocate. Here's a couple quick steps to start doing that, and I think you mentioned one of the biggest ones is just finding a friend, bringing someone who's supportive, who could be there, who could listen to what they're saying and write it down and help you emotionally through it, which kind of references back to a little bit on a lighter note to what Dr. Bev was talking about. Thank you. Uh, Patricia, we were talking about the platinum lifestyle earlier. It was not, Miranda Lambert made it clear, it's not just about diamonds and rubies. It's also about a Bud uh, Platinum beer or an Airstream mobile home. So I'm curious, though, when you talk about platinum and diabetes, you're talking about a lot of money around self-care. I know people struggle with that all the time. Uh, What kind of advice can you give or some tips on how to save money with diabetes? Well, Max, for a person with type 2 diabetes, um, you know, when we talk about monitoring the blood sugars uh, for type 1 or for type 2, 
it's quite expensive to monitor at the rate that we usually will recommend uh, several times a day, especially for the type 1. But when it comes to the type 2 who is not taking insulin, you can kind of stagger when you monitor. You can get an overall picture of what your blood sugars are at various times of the day by testing um, different times of the day on different days. Say on Monday you may do an AM fasting at on Tuesday a bedtime. Of course, if there is any episode uh, where the person is feeling um, uneasy or feeling that there may be a problem, you would check uh, periodically throughout the day. But when possible, checking various times and staggering those times can be a real expense saver when it comes to testing strips. All those test strips um, are available through insurance coverage if that uh, person has it. Some people who don't have the coverage for the testing strips, it's an out-of-pocket expense. That's about $1 per strip. So when you're testing four, five, six times a day, that can be very costly over a month. Um, another thing that some people are doing is to uh, buy generics for medications. The generics cost a lot less than the brand names. And you can always ask for samples or call manufacturers of various products to see if samples are available as well. Uh, they're usually really... Um, lenient about sending out certain things uh, that they may want you to sample and see if you like it, and, of course, that boosts sales. I love it. Great advice. Thank you so much for that. Patricia, I bet you didn't know that Miranda Lambert finished third on the 2003 season of Nashville Star Singing Competition. That's true, but guess what, everybody? She's gone on to have five consecutive number one albums on the country charts, including her newest album, Platinum. Let's hear another song before we meet our special diva. Welcome back. You're listening to Diabetes Late Night. I'm your host, Mr. Diva Bedek, and tonight we're talking about self-worth and diabetes, and we're about to meet my very special guest. She's the founder of an amazing organization called thebeaties.org. She's also a puppeteer. She's a phenomenal woman living with diabetes. Please welcome Marina Saplina. Hi, Marina. Hello. So happy to be here. Hi. <laughs> I've jumped all over your pronunciation, so give everyone your full no, name. No, that was spot on. Well done. Oh, oh wow. Okay. I, maybe I could join Miranda Lambert and Blake on a, on a country tour after sh- the show tonight. <laughs> all right. Well, you know, I have been getting emails since you and I created this video that's up on the Divabetic website landing page, um, and it's mainly on one topic, and in that video you talk about marrying your diabetes. And so I've been asked by several people, what, is, what, did, what did she do? How did she marry her diabetes? So I want to start with that, first of all. Tell us a little bit about your diabetes and tell us about the ceremony you had uh, about a month ago or about two months ago. Uh, sure. Well, um, how the, so I have type 1 diabetes for a quarter of a century. Um, how I married my diabetes was I have a friend who, um, Barbara Michaels, she's known as the jester of the peace, and she's a wedding officiate. Um, and she was doing uh, several weddings to get recording and, and footage for her, for her amazing website. She does these really beautiful, unconventional weddings. Um, and she was like, you know, Marina, would you like to come join me? And I was like, well, I, who would I marry? Um, 
And so then I thought of marrying my diabetes <laughs> because uh, I've been on a, you know, I've had a pretty 360 revolution about coming to um, full acceptance and um, and honoring, I would say, of my disease, um, and which is the premise of the BDS.org, um, mm-hmm. or at least one of the foundation principles. Um, and so I, I wrote a commitment to uh, I wrote I wrote a vow of commitment to my BDS, um, and thus we were married. <laughs> and uh, you know um, I think it's spectacular. I mean, and how do you feel afterwards? Was, I mean, just saying those words aloud must have been. It was incredible. Um, yeah. I was actually. I mean, I had an inkling that, you know, I I thought it would be a good idea, and and I I was inspired by the thought. Um, but indeed, I was I was really surprised by um, by the act of doing it, that the act of commitment and having you know having an, uh, people in front of me witness my words and have also you know speech being given um, of of very powerful words. You know, I mean, a marriage ceremony is a really powerful act. Um, so it really. Uh, I was surprised by how empowered I felt. I thought I would be, but I was still surprised. Um, and I actually, I wanted to um, to comment on a, you know, this podcast is happening kind of at a at a really ironic time with Robin Williams passing, um, his self-inflicted death. But um, it really uh, resonated with me because I also have tried committing suicide mm-hmm. um, at this point many years ago um, and all of and I've come on a massive journey um, from that point um, so suicide and depression and you know you asked earlier is it was it linked to diabetes like is depression and diabetes linked and mm-hmm. I think it's a very nonlinear relationship um, it's sort of difficult to pinpoint, you know, A causes B. Um, but I can say that I did not have the inner emotional and psychological resources to come to a solution. I was actually through the conversation I was researching. I love that definition of psychic. Um, I thought it was spot on, and I just found um, a blog post where a woman who's worked as a suicide counselor for over a decade writes that, you know, there, uh, there's a quote that often has been said, which is that suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and she said, she wrote of how she's sick and tired of hearing that because such a comment um, might sound clever to people who have never been in such a dark place. Um, but to those who are in that dark place, and I can say for certain that this is my <laughs> this is my journey, that suicide was the solution um, that I thought would would get rid of the unbearable pain. Um, and what led you, so, how did you get yeah. out of it? What led you, you know, what led you out of it, Marina? Because I know people listening are obviously identifying with it and understanding this, and, you know, to have you be on the show right now is incredible, and, and I appreciate your honesty. So what kind of led you out of that? I would say it was a very long journey. Um, I would say actually that um, at that point, I didn't realize that I wasn't asking for help. You know, people say, like, ask for help, ask for help. I actually had to come to understand what it means to ask for help, um, what it means to, to feel that there's community that can hold me um, and that I don't have to go through everything alone. Um, what helped, I think, got, I mean, it was, it was really a six-year journey, I would say, um, becoming a very much more physically active person, uh, learning what presence is, allowing myself to be physically present in my body, physically, emotionally, mentally present in my body, um, gaining resources to basically uh, talk back to my negative thought cycles, um, which is still a constant practice. Mm-hmm. Those um, affirmations, like really using affirmations. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. that's a great affirm- practice. Absolutely. 
And also probably what you're doing right now with the beaties, right? Like what you're trying to do and how you're using puppetry and some of your theatrical background to kind of help others. I'm sure there's that's that was that part. I mean, was just the idea of that seed when it was going on kind of helping you out of it a little bit too? I I, I think the beaties came um, because I came to see that my attempt and my many years of struggling with depression um, could have been aided by resources that don't exist or are not accessible enough Um, and that there is an active, um, that there are ways that people can be served and helped um, and that theater is a very powerful way to connect us to our emotions. Um, you know, when I, when I was in that very dark place, I remember feeling like I was a tiny little center point, uh, basically suffocated by a box within a box within a box within a box within a box. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and powerful live connections can cut through those many layers. I, I'm, I'm a living, <laughs> you know, uh, example of that. Um, and... So, yes, all of that absolutely feeds the work of the Beaties. Um, and having known that darkness, I can speak to the fact that how, how, how much the light is, comes from that dark seed, right? And it's a constant choosing of, of no, I'm not going to give in to that monster. <laughs> and that I also, that there are resources that can help to not do that. And now tell us like a little bit more about the Beaties because a lot, lot of our listeners are not familiar with it, and I and I think it's an amazing organization. I want tell everyone what it is and what you just told us a little bit about some of your mission. So just uh, describe it a little bit because it is so colorful, it is so theatrical. I think people would really be fascinated. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the Beaties Org is using the tools of theater and bringing it into healthcare. Um, what we've done is. We've created a, a character, a puppet character, out of diabetes, who's the Beaties. Um, and we lead workshops um, and engagements. We work with healthcare providers. Um, and we create living content, which are theatrical experiences that are interactive and porous, um, that creates community and creates basically a safe space for people to uh, be able to look at what is within them. Um, what is happening to them? How are they processing their chronic illness? How are they processing the diabetes? How are they processing all the emotional responses that that happen through the journey of a life? Um, and we're setting it in a very... There's definitely a lot of entertainment and laughter, and laughter is very healing. Um, and, yeah, that, that's, that's kind of the short little nugget of what we're doing, what, are, what we're about. I love it. I think it's amazing. (laughs) And we're going to come right back after this Miranda Lambert song. I'm going to bring back the Charlie's Angels of Outreach, play a few games, and then meet Mama Rosemary. Hold on, everybody. Here we go with more Miranda Lambert. Feeling a little bit of country over here, everybody. You're listening to Diabetes Late Night, inspired by Miranda Lambert, y'all. I guess I should say, hey, Dr. Bev, uh, you're on the line with me, as well as Neva White and Patricia Addy Gentle, all three of you are CDEs. We're talking to Marina, the founder of the Beatties organization. Uh, Dr. Beverly Adler, I just want to talk a little bit about the conversation I was having with Marina. I'm sure you had a couple things you'd like to say. I would, and I thank you so much for reading my mind. <laughs> I would. And, uh, Marina, I have to say that uh, you are extremely uh, brave to um, really share such a personal story about uh, your, um, you know, uh, consideration of uh, suicide. And I'm so happy that, um, that you chose life. And... Uh, um, I, I just wanted to kind of summarize what I heard. Um, <clears throat> originally, uh, Marina felt very hopeless and helpless 
um, partially because of her diabetes, but I'm sure there were other things in her life which, you know, we don't have to uh, to know about, but we could know about her feeling hopeless and helpless with her diabetes. And over the course of that journey, she was able to choose to control her her situation, which is was part of what lifted her out of the darkness, and ultimately feel empowered, and and which is the opposite of feeling hopeless and helpless. So, I I think uh, it's an ongoing journey we all are dealing with as well. But you know, congratulations for finding her her um, you know love of life and which she did with her her uh, website and finding her empowerment thank you and um, Neva you're on the line I know you you know you you're the leader of the diva Beta club in and Philadelphia we're we're hosted at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital incredible healthcare institute one of the best in the country I know you've dealt with all types of people living with diabetes, including uh, type 1, type 2, but bus drivers, all walks of life. What are your thoughts on it? Well, I'm just so, uh, we're so really fortunate at Jefferson. We do shared medical visits. Um, Our DISH program, which is Diabetes Information and Support for Your Health, and we actually have a session every month that is led by a therapist. And I really see this as a golden opportunity for those individuals who come to our class to really work through some of the um, healthy coping and really dealing with the diabetes. And also I'd like to say our monthly diabetic club meetings, it's really an opportunity for people to talk about the, you know, the, 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 the challenges, the, those challenges, and seeing how the next person, you know, what they did, how did they get over, how did they feel better about living every day with the diabetes. So we're we're really fortunate to have those resources um, in our facility, and we have just started. Uh, I just took a mental health first aid uh, course, and I actually am now an instructor. And we're going to be offering mental health first aid training to lay individuals as well as health care providers. So we're very excited about being able to provide this service as well. Fantastic. There's a movement afoot. Patricia Addy Gentle, you and I love to play games. We've done it at the Taking Control of Your Diabetes conferences. So you're going to be my co-host as we present Marina with a game, everybody. We're switching up here. It's time for diabetes, our Diabetes Time Machine Challenge, Marina. You're going okay. to try to put these three milestones in the correct chronological order, starting with what you think happened first. You will oh, be able goodness. to tune in. To, you will be able to channel Patricia through your f- phone friend line if you need help. <laughs> Here they are. Number one, the year when Broadway legend Elaine Stritch was born. Number two, the year when Frederick Grant Banting and John James Ricard McLeod were awarded the Nobel Prize for the discovery of insulin. And number three, the year that Elliot P. Jocelyn begins his private practice in Boston. What do you think happened first? Wow. Well, I know when insulin was discovered, but I don't know... When they got the Nobel Prize. When they got the Nobel Prize. (laughs) Hmm... When do, you oh think, when do you think Elaine Stritch was born? You know, my Broadway history is um, is of a very limited variety. <laughs> um, what if we say that um, I, I need to I need to put this into chronological order? Yes, hmm. you have your you have Elaine um, Stritch's birth. You have. Uh, the, disco- the Nobel Prize for discovery of insulin for Banting and McLeod, mm. McLeod, and you have uh, the year that Elliot Jocelyn started private practice in Boston. And so Thank I you. have one lifeline call. Is this what you're suggesting? Yeah, but first give us your idea, and then Patricia, I know, okay. reads up on history every month. She lives for this. Uh, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, well, I know that Elliot Jocelyn was a pioneer in diabetes, um, I think his would be last. Okay. Um, would be the most recent. Okay. Um, and 
Oh, you know, I would put I would probably put the Nobel Peace Prize uh, the Nobel the Nobel Prize first. First, and when would you put Elaine Stretch second? I guess and in the center. Yes. Are you good with that? That would be my guess. <laughs> ah! Oh no! <laughs> Patricia, you're on. What do you think happened, Patricia? All right. Well, actually, um, the Nobel Prize, um, you, you were right in thinking that it came between the two. But Dr. Jocelyn actually started his practice in 1898. And um, insulin, the Nobel Prize for insulin was in 1923. And then Elaine Stritch was born in 1925. So she would be last. Yes. But guess what? Ah. You, you know what? Ah. Everyone's a, oh, everyone's a winner a at Diva Bettig <laughs> for, for playing along tonight and helping us remind people of how fortunate we are to live today and enjoy Indeed. all the technologies available. You are going to get a special gift basket containing <laughs> a cabbage cheese gift certificate. Dr. Greenfield's hand and foot creams specially formulated for people with diabetes, and New Naturals, a low-glycemic, tooth-friendly sweetener to try and enjoy. So thanks for being a part of that and having fun with us and encouraging people to learn more about diabetes history. Thank you. Now, listen up. It's time to meet my final diva. She's been hanging on the whole night. Please welcome to the show Mama Rosemary. Hello. Oh la la. <laughs> Here Welcome I to the am, Marie. Well, thank you very much for having me. And I don't want Marina to feel badly because I went one, two, three, so I was really off <laughs> on that uh, time cycle. But anyhow, I do have a Mother Your Diabetes tip for August. It is a helpful way for you to become aware of how many carbohydrates you are eating. Carb counting is a meal planning technique to help you keep your blood glucose levels in your target range. Since carb counting can seem overwhelming at first, I recommend that you start by counting the carbs on food labels. The two most important lines on a food label for carbohydrate counting are the serving size and the number of grams of total carbohydrates. Since there's usually more than one serving inside your favorite food or beverage container, make sure you multiply the total number of carbs, grams, by the number of servings you intend to eat or drink. Once you begin counting carbs on your food labels, it will become easier to integrate carb counting into your daily life. Until September, ciao for now. (laughs) Great job. Thank you for being a part of the show, Mom. You're welcome. <laughs> Marina, what a blast we had having you on the show tonight. You were wonderful. And I, like Dr. Bev said, I'm bringing her back on the show for a second. I just appreciate your honesty and, and talking and helping us bring more, um, paint a, a fuller portrait around depression and going through it. And, and like she said, for choosing life, I just celebrate you for that. Uh, I, it's It's an amazing time I think we're living in where it's finally all coming out of the darkness. So thank you. And, Dr. Bev, we did have a lot of heavy topics tonight. I'd love to give you one more moment to um, talk a little bit about what we discussed tonight on the show. Well, uh, thank you very much. Uh, The the, the only thing I would like to talk about as far as diabetes and self-esteem because uh, um, poor self-esteem Uh, can overwhelm any patient with diabetes and negative comments from healthcare providers or family, friends uh, can negatively impact a person's self-esteem. There is a stigma that we've talked about uh, attached to diabetes which is no fault of our own and how to try to boost self-esteem is uh, by supportive family, supportive friends, supportive therapy, um, supportive uh, programs like yours and the Diabetes Online Community and um, support groups, individual therapy, all these things can help 
uh, boost self-esteem. And, uh, you know, as Marina said, it, you don't know that you, you need to reach out and uh, ask for help. But these, these are ways to help boost self-esteem. Great. Well, thank you so much. And I want to thank everyone for listening tonight. Remember, every diva has an entourage, and I'm so glad to be part of yours. Stop clapping, got a real good feeling, something bad about to happen. Pulled up to the church, but I got stoned up, had to back it on up, couldn't make it to the service. Grabbed all the cash underneath my mat, got a real good feeling, something bad about to happen. I'm headed to the bar with my money out the mat. Got a real good feeling, something.